You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All colleges, or at least the ones I know, have dedicated alumni who will tell you that their alma mater is one of the truly great colleges. But that can't be the end of the conversation. Any given school and schools thinking together need to establish some apparatus for deciding what counts as better and what stands as worse, so the colleges can aim at real targets when we reform. Harvey Weingarten's book, Nothing Less Than Great, Reforming Canada's Universities, unveils some of the global questions in, her, in his pursuit of a, of, of a national reform, and Christian Humanist Profiles is happy to search the latter for the sake of the former. Harvey, thank you for talking with us. My pleasure. One element of your book that I particularly appreciate is your focus on the character of Canadian universities. These are public-funded, public-admissions institutions, and they are historically dedicated to research, but open because of that public character to other possibilities. So what are some of the implications of, the, of that public and open character of Canadian universities in particular? So first of all, in contrast to the United States, we don't have a material or substantial private university system. So the future of higher education, higher education delivery in Canada is almost exclusively within the purview of public institutions. There is no private sector really that we can count on the way the Americans can count on their private colleges and universities. So that's number one. Number two, that the institutions that we have in Canada, because they're public, yes, they do do research and that's part of their mandate, but uh, equally, if not more important part of their mandate is to serve the educational and academic needs of the citizenry. That means that just as we expect, you expect in the States, our universities are the places where we expect the leaders of tomorrow to be developed, to be educated, to explore some of the great societal issues, to debate them, and to come up hopefully with some solutions. But there is a very strong educational side to the public universities in Canada. Uh, as I say, as important, it's certainly as the research mandate of our universities. And for the most part, we have a very accessible public university system in Canada. We have generous amounts of financial aid, more than, frankly, the Pell system in the United States. And so in many jurisdictions of Canada, we have certainly mitigated, if not removed, financial barriers to attend our universities. Our universities and our big research universities, like the University of Toronto, University of British Columbia, in contrast to the American system, have a very big, University of Toronto has about 70,000 students. It's not uncommon for a provincial university to have 50,000 students. And most of those students are undergraduates. There are graduate programs, substantial graduate programs in our big research universities. But our big universities in Canada serve a huge undergraduate population. Very good. And as far as that goes, I mean, one of the really interesting parts, I mean, and you mentioned it just now, but I want to hear you expand it on a little bit, is that there's a much more explicit and a much more deliberate focus on social mobility in Canadian universities than 
certainly than we associate with schools like Harvard, Yale, Duke, Stanford. Um, what measures would you recommend in order to amplify Canada's education-driven social mobility? Because you do have some definite reforms that you want to point there. And to what extent do you think that might translate into places south of your border? Uh, are the Ivy Leagues ever going to become as, uh, how, to, how to say this, as democratic as the University of Toronto? I'll start at the bottom and work my way up. No, I don't think they will be as democratic. And in fact, the data suggests that Canadian universities, even the most high reputation universities in Canada are much more inclusive, much more equitable than what you see going on with the distribution of students in the United States across institutions. Second thing I'd say is that every piece of research I know of reinforces the understanding and the finding that education, higher education, is one of the great drivers of social mobility and economic mobility in, uh, in North America. And that's true both in Canada and the United States. The data on this are really very good. We have lots of studies that look at the families, the socioeconomic status of students and the families they come from. And the measures we use are if you come from a family, for example, in the lowest quintile of family income in Canada, and you go to post-secondary or you don't go to post-secondary, what is the probability of you ending up your life in a higher socioeconomic status? In Canada, in, that, in those measures of social and economic mobility, Canada does very well. In fact, as I say in the book, oddly enough, Canada is do, appears to be doing a better job on economic and social mobility than is true for the, uh, the much-touted American dream. We have lots of evidence of students who, who come from families that are at the lower socioeconomic stratum. And because of their participation in post-secondary in our university system, they end up with more prosperous, frankly, wealthier, more advantaged lives than their parents were. That's the great promise of higher education. And both Canadian and American institutions do it well. I happen to think that the way we're structured in Canada, we do it particularly well. Could we do it better? You bet. And, and that's interesting. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, keep going, keep going. One of the recommendations I make in the book, and it relates directly to this issue, is that even Canada has some social and cultural and ethnic groups which are not participating in post-secondary education <coughs> to an extent that we would like or for which they would benefit. So we, for example, our indigenous populations are not as represented in our universities to the extent that they rightfully should be. Students who come from lower socioeconomic families, while they can go to university, they're not attending in the same proportions as students who come from higher income families. Students who are first generation, that is they come from a family where neither parent has gone to university, are less likely to attend Canadian universities than students who have at least one parent who went to university. 
So what can we do? <clears throat> we can target our financial aid packages. We can target our interventions in ways that specifically go after the students who are currently underrepresented in Canadian universities. We know what the successful elements of such programs are. <coughs> Excuse me. We know what the successful elements of such programs are. And we can increase the proportion of those students who go to university. And all the data suggests that they will greatly benefit from that. Very good. You are uh, very generous to American universities there. I, uh, I, I guess when I think about the social stratification that universities enforce in America, I think of the, you know, the, the hedge funds and the Washington think tanks and, you know, all of these places that are just littered with Ivy League graduates. The fact that, you know, you can't throw a rock without hitting a Stanford grad in Silicon Valley. Um, <laughs> On the other hand, I mean, I, I do well, and I mean, even, you know, here in uh, the state where I will, where I live, Georgia, uh, you know, the suburbs of Atlanta are filled with upper middle class University of Georgia grads. Uh, so I, I, it's interesting to hear you say that uh, what social mobility there is in the United States is also, to a large extent, assisted by rather than held back by higher education. So that's, that, that's instructive for me. That's good for me to hear. So think about something else. Don't think about the Stanfords, the Harvards, and the Yales. Look at the data that come out of Anthony Carnevale's uh, group at Georgetown University that has looked at issues of education and economic return and social mobility for decades. And what he points out, and again, this is documented in the book, is that in the United States, it's not the Harvard and Yales and Stanfords that are driving social mobility of the and economic mobility of the population. It is places like City University of New York. It is some of the public institutions. It is some of those institutions that really do target access that are having the greatest impact on mobility in the United States. The system is different in Canada, but you have evidence in the United States of which institutions are really the, of most benefit in terms of social and economic mobility. And they're the ones that are not the highest reputation or highest ranked ones, but boy, are they doing a job for some people. Very good, very good. One very frank investigation that you undertake in this exploration of social mobility involves free tuition pro programs. And your report, I mean, doesn't soften the impact. Free tuition tends to benefit families whose young already were headed for university. So what measures do you recommend in order to, you've already talked about this a little bit, but to actually target those families that are less likely to go? I mean, is it just a matter of demographic studies? Is it a matter of marketing? What are the concrete measures that you would recommend so that those families actually do end up uh, being part of that university system? So the good news is that we have some programs that appear to have been quite successful at targeting people who are less likely to go to universities and actually getting them to go to post-secondary and to succeed. So what are the elements of those programs? First of all, start targeting students much earlier than we target them now. We tend to market these interventions to get people to go to university 
in, in, at the end of high school. That's way too late. We have to start targeting students and we know we can identify who are statistically speaking less likely to consider university. We have to start targeting them with interventions in elementary or early secondary school. Because that's when the decisions and the, and, the, and the foundation for going to university are being laid down. If you wait till the end of high school, it's too late. Number two, it's not just about money. Do we need to provide some people with financial assistance so they're not deterred by high tuitions and by a debt load they may incur going to university? Of course we do. But equally, again, at elementary and at secondary levels, we need community interventions that model students, for students, what it's like to go to university, what the benefits of it are. These are community interventions that not just help them with academic tutoring, if that's necessary, but for simple things, like providing them with role models, like giving them bus fares to be able to travel from their house to where the tutor is. And so, again, the good news is that we have some programs, and pricing, but we have programs that have that put broad supports around students at an earlier age than the end of high school. And these appear to be more successful, target, targeted to getting those targeted populations underrepresented in universities to be far more likely to go and to succeed. And all of the data we have says that if we can get them on high school, get them into university and have them succeed, they will enjoy as many of the benefits of having gone to university as students who come from more advantaged environments. Very good. I wanna to turn to uh, questions of assessment and I'm gonna get a little bit autobiographical here. Part of my ongoing responsibilities since day one of my work here at Emanuel College, and this is my 13th year here, uh, have involved general education learning outcomes assessment and for all 13 of those years, I've treated it as, as something that I had to do and get done so that I could get back to what I came here to do, namely to teach. So what changes does your book recommend for assessment endeavors in particular, other than making sure that people like me don't get too close to them? <laughs> um, look, this is a the question you're asking relates to the general issue that often goes under the title of what are the purposes of the university? It's more complicated today, but surely one of the purposes of the university is to educate people, to make them more engaged participants in, and informed participants in society, and to allow them to lead successful personal and professional lives. Different institutions and different universities, depending on their history and traditions and their who, what kind of students they recruit, will operationalize that purpose in a different way. And you know some of the great debates that have gone on in curriculum. You know, there are people who promote the great books curriculum. And there are people who uh, promote, uh, you know, who have the view that it should all be science-based. But in general, what we're looking for is to instill in our students in the three, four, five years they give us as undergraduates, 
the skills and the competencies to live productive, fulfilled, gratifying, contributing, engaged lives. So the argument I make in the book is that should be the focus. A university should decide what the purpose of its undergraduate curriculum is. And is it to produce scientifically literate graduates? Is it to produce moral or ethnic, uh, uh, moral or ethical graduates? Um, is it to have them well-versed in something or something else? And once you articulate what you expect a graduate of your university to know, be able to do, the skills and competencies they have, then it behooves an institution to go and measure whether they're succeeding in their undergraduate curriculum. Some of this we do very well. We are remarkably good at universities at measuring the knowledge we try to instill into students' heads. Content, information, is largely what we teach, largely what we evaluate, and largely what we credential. Nothing wrong with that. But the argument I make in the book is that knowledge is fleeting and is only part of what we want. We want other skills and competencies and attributes to see in our graduates. And we should be rigorous and disciplined at articulating what those things are, measuring whether in fact they are acquired, figuring out how to best teach them, and credentialing them. Part of this argument comes from the angst that we're seeing now among employers on the issues of skills gaps, that apparently some employers are having difficulty finding workers who have the skills and competencies they need for success in their workplace. And they're not talking about knowledge. They're not talking about your ability to solve equations or to know the important dates of history. They're talking about skills and competencies like critical thinking, problem solving, literacy, numeracy, teamwork, adaptability, resilience. Those are things we always wanted university graduates to have. And we should be doing a better job of measuring whether in fact students are acquiring those skills. Why? Because we have research in both of our countries that already identifies that some proportion of people graduating from our universities don't appear to have the skills at a level that we would expect them to have or that employers want. And that's why some significant employers like Google, Amazon, some publishing houses don't even want to see a university transcript anymore. They don't want to see all the courses you took and the grades you got at them. They want to know what skills and competencies you have and whether you'll fit in well and contribute to their workplaces. And we're not doing a good job typically at university of measuring and assessing those skills in any rigorous disciplined way or credentialing them. So, so I've got a follow-up question on that because one of the critiques of the SAT test here in the States 
And I actually don't know if, if the SAT has a presence in Canada or not. You can tell me that when you're answering the question. But one of the critiques is that because there are books and video series and private tutors that help the well-off students, the ones who can afford those things, to perform better at the SAT, that effectively it becomes a measure of privilege rather than a measure of aptitude. Uh, am I thinking way too far ahead on this thing, or is that something that is inherent in measuring aptitudes and skills rather than knowledge bases? It's a good question, but I think you're thinking too far ahead because- I'll, I'll take that, I'll take that. <laughs> and the reason for it is because you're worried about a problem that comes up in an imperfect world because those objections to SAT and some of the standardized tests are legitimate. But it doesn't mean that they don't have merit, those tests. And in fact, uh, I would say this, if a certain exam or assessment tool helps you teach an important and necessary and required skill and attribute better, then it's useful. Make sure you don't use it in the wrong way, make sure there aren't unintended consequences, but there's a lot of students who come from disadvantaged places, perhaps, who perform very well on the SAT. And that's helped them get into certain places. So my view is that it's not, while I don't dispute the argument you made about one of the unfortunate aspects of the SAT exam, we should consider whether throwing out the SAT exam is a net benefit or a net detriment. Right, and of course that's not a uh, hypothetical question in, in uh, the USA right now as more and more colleges, including I think the entire uh, University of California system are debating about whether to throw out the SAT entirely in their admissions process. But no, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about your book. So I wanna ask uh, you to restate one of the book's findings for me. I'm gonna say it first, but my listeners are not gonna believe me. So I want you to say it because you're the expert here. But if I understand your book right, there is no strong correlation between what students major in and what jobs they eventually land in. So the first thing I want you to do is repeat that so our listeners can hear you say it. But then what are the implications for that finding as we structure and restructure university curricula? <laughs> so you're right to sound a little incredulous about this because no one oh I, you, you already had me sold it's, it's my listeners i want to okay. hear this <laughs> no one really believes it but the data are overwhelming that in fact what you study at university is not necessarily a good predictor of the job you're going to get now look let's not be silly about this if you want to be a practicing engineer obviously it's better that you went through an engineering program. If you want to be an accountant, you're going to have to have taken a certain curriculum. And if you went to a business school and an accounting program, it's more likely that you might end up than someone who didn't working as an accountant. But overall, across the population, if I take most students, particularly those in the core arts and sciences, but even in the regulated professions, and ask what jobs did they have, perhaps not their first job, but what jobs did they end up 
doing most of their lives. It would be hard to predict from what they did. That's why so many engineers, look how many engineers are not doing engineering 10 years out. They're running companies, they're doing other things. My God, look how many lawyers 10 years out are not doing any legal work. They're in politics or leading think tanks or something like that. Think of the number of philosophy majors who are leading think tanks, running, managing big businesses, etc. The data are clear. And one thing I learned in graduate school is the data are the data. And the facts simply are that it's very hard to predict what job someone will end up with based upon what they studied. You know, we have a particular case in Ontario, in the province where I live, where for many years, we were graduating teachers at a teacher's college like there was no tomorrow. But there were no jobs for them. So we have something in the order of 20,000 people with teaching credentials in Ontario who are not, who are not teaching. But they weren't living in a box on the street either. They were doing other things. <clears throat> they were working in management positions, sales positions, policy positions. They went into government, etc. Okay, what is the implication of this? To me, it's simple. Stop worrying so much about what governments worry about. Governments are notorious for work for thinking like this. Oh, we're going to need 50, you know, 50 political science graduates. The state legislature is going to fund 50 spots in the public system for political science majors. We need 42, you know, 420 engineers. We will fund 420 spots. That's a mugs game and the data don't support that. What you should you extract from the incontrovertible data we have it is to say we should be focusing more on skills and attributes, skills and competencies. What are the skills and competencies universities should focus on that students will need regardless of the jobs that they will have after they graduate? Because you don't know what job they're gonna have. Even if you knew what their first job is, they're gonna change jobs five to seven years. And a non-trivial proportion of the jobs that they will have in the future don't even exist today. What, so focus on the important generalizable skills and competencies. What are those? Critical thinking and problem solving. That has been the mainstay of what most people said university education was about anyway, to teach people to be better problem solvers and critical thinkers. That was as true for someone in a fine arts and history program as it was for someone in chemistry and physics. Literacy, numeracy. If you want to include ethics in that, I wouldn't be averse to that at all. Engage citizens. So focus on the transferable skills and attributes people need. But again, let me stress this. It's not just for their professional working life. It's for the decisions they're going to have to make in their life. Someone who lives in a flood zone in the United States is going to have to decide, is it time for me to, should I rebuild my flooded out house for the third time? Or do I transfer, move somewhere else and take a government handout 
to help me do that. If you have cancer, there might be three or four treatment options you will be offered by the oncologist. Each one of them has a cure rate, side effects associated with it. And you have to decide which of those options you want. It's a tough problem. If you buy a house, you have to decide, should I lock into a fixed mortgage or a variable rate mortgage? There, should I send my kid to public or private school? These are decisions we make. All the, What political party should I vote for in the upcoming election? These are decisions we're being asked to make in our personal lives all the time. And you need a certain level of critical thinking ability, problem solving ability, literacy and numeracy to be able to get the information you need to solve those problems. Lord knows we don't want to descend into a world where you have some guru who you love on Facebook, who you're just going to listen to just because they say that that this is the thing to do. Right, right. I want to turn the corner here into what this looks like in terms of the concrete record keeping of universities, because you make a lot of interesting suggestions about uh, translating this competency-based education that you're talking about here uh, into a different kind of transcript document. And I mean that for some people, that's probably going to seem terribly dull. For me, I was fascinated. I said, I, I know what a transcript looks like. And, uh, you know, Dr. Weingarten here is imagining a very different kind of document to look at. What does this new kind of document look like? So, first of all, an important element is the traditional element of what courses did someone take and what, what program were they in, what courses did they take and what grades did they get? I, I think you're not going to replace that very quickly. That's it. Equally important, in my view is that there be an appropriate, rigorous, psychometrically valid assessment of skills and competencies, like someone's literacy level, their critical thinking ability, their problem solving ability, some indication of teamwork capacity, et cetera. And my sense is that those things should be on a transcript, should be assessed by the institution in a rigorous way. And those things should be on a transcript. That's what employers are looking for. And I know this because I, I looked at a few YouTube clips so I could hear your name pronounced so I wouldn't say it wrong, but I know that your background is in psychology. So just take a moment. I mean, what would a valid uh, measurement of teamwork or of those kinds of soft skills look like? Because mm -hmm. I, I know that when I uh, fill out graduate school recommendations for my students, there's always a Likert scale that says, uh, you know, this student is exceptional, better than average, average. You better worry about this one, you know, yeah. uh, when it comes to these soft skills. But I mean, they're pretty much relying on me to tell the truth, which, you know, I hope that they can trust that, but there's no guarantee of that. Uh, how do you get a little bit more rigor into that kind of project? So, yes, we do assess these things just as you described them. They're asking you for your best judgment, right? But, and I did not do this. This was not my area of psychology, but there's a whole area of psychology about assessment, which is what are, how do you make sure that the instruments you are using to assess a skill or a competency are psychometrically valid? I discussed some of the issues like this in my book. They have to meet the 
psychometric properties of reliability and validity. There are ways of assessing that. The good news is that for some things like critical thinking, we do have psychometrically reliable and valid assessments of critical thinking. They're never perfect. Nothing in life like this is perfect, but they are potentially extremely helpful. There are other skills like resilience, like teamwork, that we do not have such instruments. And the argument that I made in the book, and I'll make for you here, is that these things are, it is so important that we measure these things well and credential them well, that it, behooves, that it behooves us who say our students have these skills to actually develop the instruments, the metrics that would provide psychometrically reliable and valid measurements of these skills. It's, it, it, there's a methodology to it, it can be done. Take some work, but it's important. And let me say this, uh, when we, met, we, we evaluate students at university all the time, all the time. We are giving them evaluation instruments all the time. We give them multiple choice exams. We give them short answer exams. We give them essay exams. We do this and we do that. We do a variety of things. We don't even, how come we, we have not worried about the reliability and validity of some of those measures when we're measuring information and content. And yet we I'll go said that I'll go ahead and say that I have, but you're right. A lot of people don't. <laughs> a lot of people don't. So we use these all the time. I just think we should transfer a view that says it is the job of the university to provide a credential that is useful to the students, useful to society, useful to potential employers, and to have the information on that be trusted and valued. And that will require us to do a better job of measurement of students' knowledge, skills, and attributes, and we're doing that. Very good. I want you to talk a little bit about what that looks like on a broader scale. We've talked about reporting on the individual student side, uh, but some terms that you introduced to me in this book, I imagine people who are more familiar with this field already knew them, uh, are measuring institutions and specifically universities uh, in terms of inputs and outputs and outcomes. And you say that, you know, the, the sort of, you know, U.S. News and World Report ranking system focuses entirely too much on the inputs to the detriment of outputs and outcomes. So talk to our listeners a little bit. I mean, what do those three terms mean in terms of institutional assessment and ranking? And what would it look like to focus more uh, on the outcomes and on the outputs than on the inputs. Yeah. People have written very eloquent assessments and critiques of the kind of ranking systems we have now that rely mostly on inputs. So what do these things measure? They tend to measure things about wealth and exclusivity. So how hard is it to get into the institution? The harder it is, the higher your rank. If you have a library that has gazillions of holdings, that's good. If you have a lot of financial aid per student or a lot of money to spend per student, that's all good. Those are all input measures. And the question is, how well do input measures relate to the thing that we really want out of the university, which is to educate people, to have them learn something and to have them uplift their lives and live better lives as a result of their 
university experience. Those things are outputs. Outputs are things like, did you get a job? Was it a reasonable job? Did you vote in elections? Because those are things we want, right? We want engaged citizens. Inputs are easy to measure, but they don't necessarily tell you very much about whether you're doing a good job. They just tell you a lot of stuff about that describes the institution. Outputs are much better because they actually tell you whether a university, an institution is living up to its purposes and the reason in a publicly funded system, the reason the government is funding them. So why do governments fund public universities? Because it was largely related to the need to have people who are well-trained for the jobs out there. And so that's a good output measure. Are the graduates of your programs actually getting good jobs? And these analyses are going on now in Canada, United States, the United Kingdom. And the data tell us that something like about, oh, pick a number, I would pick about 15 to 20% of students going through university are not having their work trajectory uplifted, are doing no better than they would had they never gone in the first place. And you can identify some of that. And again, I would ask you to go to places like Carnivales, Georgetown Think Tank. It does brilliant work on assessing the return on investment in American institutions. We're a little behind in Canada. They're more developed on, in, in doing these analyses in the United Kingdom and in, in Britain in the Office for Students. And so outcomes are the things you really care about. That's why students are plunking down their money for tuition. They want something out of this. Whether it's a job, an uplifting experience, a good social experience, a greater network, whatever. And that's why governments are funding public systems because they want something out of it too. And you are well advised to measure the outcomes. And when you do that, you find something that looks a little different than when you just measure inputs. And I am not being paid to do this, but if for those of you who follow Malcolm Gladwell, Revisionist History Podcast, he did a brilliant set of podcasts on the historically black colleges how they are ranked, why they are ranked the way they are, and what they would have to do and frankly distort their mission to uplift their ranking. And that's interesting. I, uh, I actually am in the process of trying to schedule an interview with uh, another uh, University of Toronto Press author, uh, specifically uh, her collection is specifically critiquing those global ranking systems. So it'll be interesting to bring this conversation into contact with that one. Uh, when that happens. But my next question, I mean, still has to do with this, this question of, uh, you know, public reporting of universities. And I'll start with this one with another little bit of disclosure about my own situation. I am a, uh, an English professor at a private teaching college in the United States. And our workload each academic year is a standard 4-4, uh, almost always meaning four courses in the fall, four courses in the spring, with some exceptions for faculty with large administrative duties. So one measure that you call for in Canada, Canada's public universities is a public workload disclosure for all faculty. So what problems would that solve? And would that be a good or bad idea in systems where the 
teaching load is much less level. I mean, in American colleges, you know, the the teaching load down the road at the University of Georgia is just worlds different from what it is up here at Emmanuel College. Yeah. So let me just say a workload of four plus four would be considered onerous in Canada. <laughs> I, I imagine it would. Uh, and look, my argument for disclosure does not have to do with any argument that has to do with people are teaching too much, too little, less than they were before. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do for the following. Why do I call for public disclosure of workloads? Number one, there's a lot of public money going into public universities. And the public and the governments that are funneling the money to the universities should have a legitimate right to ask for some accountability about what's happening with their money. And certainly teaching loads is part of that. So I think, first of all, there's a philosophical argument for disclosure. The second argument is that I think there's a lot of myths about what faculty members do. I offer the quip in the book where one provost of a university once suggested to me that in the minds of the public, university faculty work 24 seven, 24 weeks, a year, seven hours a week. I know that's not true. And I think the public university, disclosure of what faculty members are actually contributing on the teaching side, on the research side, on the service side, would be surprising, if not shocking, to the public perception held by many in Canada, I presume in the States, and may I tell you, by many legislators. And I think it would be helpful to the university to disclose some of these data for public relations reasons. The final thing is that, is this. Look, this, the reality is that we are asking our public institutions, certainly in Canada, certainly in the United States, to do more with less public support. Public support for public higher education has been diminishing in North America for decades and it's going down and down. Okay, that means we have to A, make a case for more public support. And I think public disclosure and more transparency about what universities do with public funds would be part of that. But equally, we need to get as much productivity as possible out of the most important cohort within our universities, which is faculty. And we rely heavily on analyses, some productivity analyses that have been happening through something called the Delaware study, the University of Texas system, through some things we see going on in North Carolina, where in fact, people are asking the question of, are we getting the most out of our faculty? And one of the analyses we make is, look, the job of a tenured, tenure track, tenured faculty member is, is you know, to do teaching and research in some service. 40% teaching, 40% research, 20% service. So let's say teaching and research. Do we have some people who are, for whatever reason, not doing any research anymore? And the answer is yes. Some proportion, some percentage of tenured faculty are not really making as much of a contribution in research as others or as they used to. So now ask the question of, okay, that's fine. 
So are they making a compensatory increase in their teaching contribution? Because after all, not every faculty member has to do exactly the same as every other faculty member, but you do want some equity of workload. And the answer is that in most analyses we look at in Canada, we do not have a system where by and large, people who are contributing less to research are doing more teaching substantially than faculty members who are very active in research. That's not equitable and it's not productive. And so by disclosing your contribution in teaching research, what you do is shine a light on this equity of workload issues. And frankly, the argument I make in the book is it would be motivating to an initiative that promoted equity workload policies, where if there are faculty members who for any reason are not contributing as much now to research as they used to, that's fine, but let them make contributions in other areas, service, more research, uh, sorry, more teaching, et cetera. And that should be reflected on a, on a reporting of workload. Nothing wrong with that. But we don't have that, we don't have that transparency. It feeds a lot of myths and inappropriate views on the public about what faculty members do or do not do, how they spend their summers. And I just think we should fix this. And in the absence of fixing this, I don't think we can expect any greater public support for public higher education than we're currently seeing. Right. And that is related to another reluctance, and and I and I my sense is that it is uh, more pronounced uh, over in my uh, corner of the academic world in the humanities. Uh, we sometimes are reluctant, and that's probably putting it mildly, to quantify our quality. Um, why should universities be interested in quantifying, putting things to numbers? And how do these questions about truthfully accounting for a university's work have to do with teaching and research? What, what do these institutions hey, benefit? Tell me, Nathan. What's that? Let, let me ask you a question. Yeah, by all means. Yeah, let, let's assume you go into the bathroom one day and you uh, have a leaky faucet. Okay. And you don't have the capacity to fix it. Okay. You're going to call, you're going to call a plumber. Right? Mm -hmm. So number one, do you pay the plumber when you make the call or when the plumber walks into your house? No, usually when the work's done. Right, that's an output measure. So let's not pay you, so the related to what you asked before about inputs and outputs, we now pay universities when they enroll a student. That's an input measure. Why don't we pay them like you pay the plumber mm -hmm. when the job is done, they graduate. Second thing, I don't know if you have any children, I'm not gonna make any presumptions, but it's not uncommon to say to a child, you know, I'm gonna give you $10 a week allowance, but for you to earn your $10 a week, I need you to make your bed every day, right? Everyone, Nathan, is held accountable. I was a universe, I mean, aside from being a regular professor for many years, I was a, a university administrator for many years. Standard rule of management. Do you give people money just because they're nice people and not hold them accountable for money you give them? No. 
you hold them accountable to do a job. And if the public is putting amounts, substantial amounts of money into an institution, the public has a right to ask, what am I getting? What are the outcomes am I getting? It's not a matter of quantifying. I'm not interested in putting a number. One thing I have a very healthy respect for is that different disciplines provide evidence and talk about themselves in different ways. Humanists talk about themselves and measure things differently from the way a chemist does. Lawyers do this differently from the way accountants do. So let a profession pick the mode of demonstrating their worth, value, and contribution in a way that works for them. But you can't avoid the requirement, the responsibility of providing that evidence. So when people say, what am I getting? I went to someplace, I did four years of classical Greek. What did I get for it? I actually think the humanities instills a lot of the skills and competencies we were talking about before. I think the social sciences, humanities, may be doing the best job at universities at instilling some of these, some of these competencies. But you know what? No one believes them anymore. Because in today's world, we're a bunch of skeptics. And you're going to have to stand up and say, I can show you that I'm doing a job that is serving our students well. I believe they are. But there's a diminishing number of people who believe that. And I'll tell you who doesn't believe it are the students. And that's why they're leaving the humanities in droves. We are seeing the lowest enrollment in humanities in North America since World War II. And so quantify as you want, but quantify you must. All right. All and you right. have to be able to show people evidence. <laughs> all right. There is one more uh, policy recommendation, recommendation I want to uh, ask about, particularly as we close up here, and that is uh, your proposal for sort of universal, uh, nationally uniform introductory classes. The reason I ask is that when I teach introductory classes, whether in writing or literature or philosophy, those are usually the most hands-on classes, the ones I spend the most time customizing to the students I've got in the room. They tend to be very interactive. Uh, they tend to be very personalized. So when you make the suggestion that we need to have a standard national introductory course, uh, that baffles me and frankly troubles me. So make the case for our listeners, and then we'll see if I still need to object or if I'm just misunderstanding the question. I would suggest, let me talk about the Canadian experience that I know remarkably well. I would suggest that the Canadian student experience on introductory courses does not resemble your description. Introduction to economics, introduction to biology, introductory chemistry, introduction to political science. These are, you tend to be large classes, very large classes in Canadian universities, very depersonalized, often delivered by an instructor that is not a tenured or tenure track faculty member is a contractor session with faculty members. Little opportunity for student engagement with the professor. So that's the first observation I'd make. 
in cases like that, there is huge variability among universities in terms of the experience of students in introductory, basic introductory courses. That leads to a real problem for us when students want to transfer from one university to the next. Because if you come from some university, let's say you want to go into a, a, an accounting program or a business program in University X. I don't know if you have the background because it's so heavily dependent on the quality of the introductory course you gave, number one, is that. Number two, more and more of our stuff is going online. We can share some of these resources. There are brilliant resources out there now for teaching introductory, introductory biology or chemistry, for example, right? Former Dean of Science, I apologize. Why should we have 10 instructors at 10 universities, each developing our own material. Why can't we take the best of that lot, let them develop the best of that stuff and give it to everyone? Remember, we are public institutions here in Canada. It's an argument for efficiency and for quality. That doesn't mean you don't wanna tailor your program or your course to your particular circumstances, environment, student clientele and background and aspirations. You can do that. But more sharing among universities, particularly in public systems, might actually improve quality, might reduce the workload of some people, and might increase the experience some students have. I'm going to have to think on that. I'm going to have to think on that. But we are Fair coming enough. up on our hour. So, Harvey, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So, in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. Now, we haven't talked about all of your policy reform ideas. If there's one of them that you want to talk about here for a moment, uh, feel free to tell our listeners about it. If not, what else do you want our listeners thinking about universities, assessment, and whatever else as we head for the door? So A, thank you for the opportunity. B, I'm gonna end on this. In my opinion, education is the most important investment we make in any reason in, in our countries. Investing in the education of our young people, giving them the knowledge, skills, and competencies they need to lead successful, gratifying, fulfilling personal and professional lives is one of the most important investments we make. It's more important than building walls. It's more important than building bridges. It's more important than building prisons. It's more important than many of the other things we do. I am a great believer in the idea that the more educated our citizenry, the more our countries will prosper. So I want more education for more people. And I want as people who now don't have the privilege or luck to engage in higher education, I want as many of them as possible to benefit from the fine work and to absorb and reap the benefits that I know and all the evidence I know suggests higher education gives them. 
That's why I'm concerned about the demise of public education at all levels. And that's why I think investing in public education is frankly one of the best things we can do. And in a country like Canada, where essentially the higher education system is all public, we have to do this well, because if not, my country won't be competitive in the future. And I don't want that for my kids or grandchildren. Harvey Weingarten, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. You're welcome. My pleasure. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is Nothing Less Than Great from University of Toronto Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.